the Gaggle podcast where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover child welfare. Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. And Eliza Collins. I am a Washington correspondent and I cover the delegation over in D.C. This week on The Gaggle, a state court of appeals reversed a decision to sever a mother's right to her two children saying the state child welfare workers presented a case, quote, not sufficiently rooted in the evidence. We'll discuss this unusual case. And Democrats say Donald Trump has energized their base, but voter registration data doesn't show those numbers increasing significantly since Trump won. But we start with the Arizona delegation on Capitol Hill. Uh, For the state, it's been a memorable, if not historic, four or five months, starting with Senator McCain revealing a life-threatening cancer diagnosis and followed by his plea for the Senate to return to regular order, and of course a thumbs-down vote against the GOP health care bill. Then Senator Flake announced he won't run for re-election, and did so in dramatic fashion from the Senate floor. Eliza Collins from her Washington bureau is in town for Thanksgiving, and that gives us a chance to get her Capitol Hill perspective on some of these developments and what they mean for the future. Eliza, let's start with the mood among the delegation's members. Uh, like I mentioned, a lot of uncertainty as to who might run to replace Flake and if McCain's health will cut his term short. What are they saying? Well, there's definitely um, uncertainty. There is now for sure one open seat, potentially two down the road. We've seen Congresswoman Cinema has already, the, she's a Democrat, has already stepped in and said she'd like to take that seat. She did so before Flake announced his retirement. And then there were some discussions within the delegation about which Republican would run against cinema. And of course, Kelly Ward has already announced she's another Republican, um, more of an anti-establishment endorsed by Steve Bannon. And she announced she ran against Senator McCain, lost that race and pretty much moved right into announcing that she was going to run against Senator Flake. So she's been in the race for a while. The more establishment wing of the party does not want her to be the nominee. And so they are looking for someone a little bit more mainstream, I guess, would be a way you could describe it, to um, to run against her. And so there's all kinds of, there were some people here that you guys have probably talked about that have also discussed maybe running, but it seems like Congresswoman McSally has emerged to the top of the Arizona delegation. She's told her fellow lawmakers that she'd like it, and they seem to have stepped aside for now. I've talked to Congressman Franks in the Capitol and said, did she, you know, did she tell you she was running? And he said, I think that's the plan. Are you not running? Not right now. So it seems like that's kind of the overall resigned. She is not announced. And she's, as far as we know, is still running to keep her seat um, in southern Arizona. But it seems that she's told the delegation. Was there a consensus, at least among the Republicans, that there had to be another candidate beyond Kelly Ward? Or were the more kind of Trump-friendly members of the delegation saying, well, if this is sort of the Trump-aligned candidate, we're good with Kelly Ward? Kelly Ward is an interesting candidate. I think if it might, they haven't outright said they're good with Kelly Ward, but they also haven't gone against her. I think they're waiting to see if McSally steps in or who will step in. The concern with some people, and not I'm not speaking from the delegation, but some people I've talked to in Bannon world, basically allies of Steve Bannon, is that while they really like Kelly Ward, they worry that she is not a strong enough general election candidate. Arizona has gotten more 
purple over the years. Trump did not beat Hillary Clinton by a ton of points. And so they worry that someone that is so closely aligned to Trump, so anti-establishment. Um, so it's the Republican Party split on this. I was just curious, as someone who doesn't hang out in Washington, D.C., does the delegation, like, meet? Do they have, like, coffee together? Or do they have regularly scheduled meetings where they, and are they bipartisan? You know, I don't know how often they meet. I know they had a couple of meetings, which you guys reported on here, after Flake announced that he was not going to run, kind of to figure out what to do. The delegation is very broad. There is some of the most conservative members and some of the most progressive members. And so while I think they can all get behind certain issues like veterans or and they probably do meet and discuss those, they're not as far as I know, they're not like every Tuesday having lunch the way some states do. I know states like California meet pretty frequently. They don't order in tacos? <laughs> There's not great tacos in D.C. Bummer. So if uh, Martha McSally, the congresswoman from southern Arizona, ends up running, as it appears she will, how do you, do you have a sense of how that will be viewed by the rest of, or at least the Republicans in, you know, Trent Franks or David Schweikert? the other Republicans? It's not quite clear. Trent Franks and Schweiker, they're part of the Freedom Caucus. They're certainly more conservative than McSally at least has been. Um, Her district is Gabby Gifford's old district. It is a district that Democrats have won recently. And so she's had to be a little bit more moderate than they've had to be. And so I think that they disagree on a lot of things within the party, but... At the same time, they also want a Republican to hold the seat, as we saw how close it is and how much one vote can matter. So in the end, someone like Frank said, if she wins the primary, I'll move heaven and earth to get there. And I said, so who are you supporting in the primary? And he said, I haven't decided. Ron, do you have any sense of that? I don't know how it's going to turn out. What what is striking to me, though, is that you have this incredibly important uh, Senate seat that is open, and here it is now a month later, and we don't really have anybody having jumped in on this. And, of course, we know from our own reporting that um, there's been significant interest among people in the delegation, former members of the delegation, others who are uh, weighing their own possible uh, chances. But um, here it is now all these weeks later, and we still don't really have anybody in on this. And I think it's in part because a lot of folks have the sense that um, this is going to be a tough cycle for whoever carries that nomination out of the Republican Party. And I've said this, you know, only half-jokingly, that I think the only thing that uh, Republicans fear more than Kelly Ward winning the nomination uh, is Kelly Ward being challenged for the nomination because it could drive her even further to the right and make her even more uh, objectionable to people in the middle. And so this is something that there's some angst over who can... Who can battle her and at what cost to the party's chances come November next year? So as we mentioned, Martha McSally is uh, sort of posturing herself further to the right than she has been. What, what are some of the things? I mean, we're saying that, but like point to some of the things that you've seen her do that tell you that. So the thing that is most memorable about Martha McSally from 2016 is if you even said the word that shall not be said, Donald Trump, Um, that 
McSally would recoil. She would instantly go into this guarded sort of, uh, I don't want to tell the voters what to do mode where she doesn't want to comment. She doesn't want to weigh in on the gaffe of the day. She doesn't want to be drawn into uh, this very, very uh, you know, controversial figure. Pivot to the Martha McSally we see lately. This is somebody who only in the last month or so has really sort of come to embrace and be a vocal advocate for the Trump agenda. Um, she is now holding up her very conservative voting record as measured by 538. She is literally in a picture with the president giving the Trump thumbs up uh, before the House vote on the tax legislation they're considering. And, you know, she was fairly uh, effusive in, in uh, meeting Ivanka Trump, which she also blasted out on social media. So she's really sort of come to embrace this uh, persona as a um, very aggressive, right-leaning Republican who is on board with the Trump agenda. And that's different than where she's been in this very, very closely divided district that she represents. So I went down to her district and spent a couple of days with her. And it happened, it was in August, I believe, this year when Trump was coming to Phoenix for the rally. And I spent maybe 16, 17 hours with her. And she, it was incredible the way she, Trump never really came up. I could ask about Trump, but that was not what she answered. She was incredibly on message, and her message did not include Donald Trump. And this was right after the uh, Obamacare repeal vote that was highly controversial. She voted to repeal Obamacare. It was a party-line vote. But everybody she talked to um, down in Tucson and around her district, she touted her work on the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a group of about 40 sort of moderate Republicans and Democrats who are trying to look at kind of alternate solutions on things like health care, immigration, some of the really controversial things. And they did come up with a bipartisan plan that people said, you know, good job, but it didn't go anywhere. And so that was interesting to me. And, and I would say Eliza really kind of hit it on the head with one thing on this, that Martha McSally is always on message. There's, you know, this is someone who is relentlessly uh, on point with what it is that she wants to project about herself. So um, if she's not talking about Donald Trump, it's not an accident. And if she is, it's also not an accident. That message, I think, seems to be changing, especially with that photo with Trump, um, her vote on the tax plan. So could a Senate candidate, McSally, be a very different person than current rep McSally? I at least think primary Senate McSally will be a very different person. But we'll have to see what happens with the, um, you know, when you I talk, again, I say Bannon world, but the, the Trump-aligned super PACs and those types of people, when I talk to them and they're the ones supporting Kelly Ward, they're not convinced just because she suddenly posted a photo with Donald Trump on her Twitter um, with a thumbs up. That doesn't mean, you know, they point to all of the times she wouldn't say whether she voted for him or not. I mean, to, to be a, backed by Bannon World, do you have to buy in all, you have to go all in and say, yeah, I like that he's taken on the NFL players or that he gets in the fight with LeVar Ball and, and all the other things? Or can you object to maybe his public presentation, but say, uh, I, I back his, you know, the repeal of Obamacare, I back the tax package and so forth? I think even more than those things, you have to back the anti-free uh, trade and be anti-immigration. I think those are the things that are most important to Steve Bannon. And if you're 
willing to sort of crusade for those he might overlook that you are okay with NFL players kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, so speaking of Trump, uh, Senator McCain has has cast himself sort of as the loyal opposition, speaking out on you know, any number of issues when he thinks the, the president is uh, taking the wrong stance on foreign policy or whatever it is. It, has that, are there more Republicans who are angered by that or are, do, would you think some of them appreciate it even though they probably wouldn't say it publicly? I think they might privately appreciate it. Um, they're not giving him a lot of cover. The only ones that are are Senator Flake, who is retiring, Senator Bob Corker, who is also retiring, and then Senator uh, Ben Sass of Nebraska, who's been a uh, frequent Trump critic. And I still can't figure out why Trump hasn't figured this out and gone off on him. I don't know if he doesn't follow him on Twitter or something, but Sass has kind of gone under the radar. But other than that, most people really have not stepped in. I think what Republicans were upset with McCain on was health care, and that really soured them. So as we mentioned, uh, Senator Flake is a short-timer now. Uh, how have you seen that change the way he acts back there? Has it, has it changed much? I mean, he was speaking out against Trump before. Right, and he's still speaking out against Trump. We'll have to see. There haven't really been any big votes yet to see if that changes. But Senator Flake is a conservative, and so he's likely to continue to take conservative votes with the rest of his caucus. He's not as much of a maverick um, that he would just vote no on something because he's mad at President Trump. So we'll have to see. He's definitely continue to speak out against Trump. He has not stopped, and he's gone stronger. I mean, we saw with Roy Moore in Alabama, um, a lot of Republicans are saying he should step down, and Senator Flake said, I would run to the nearest booth and vote for the Democrat. I don't think he would have said that before he was retiring, but it's mostly just words at this point. So, uh, Ron, the assumption has been that Trump has energized Democrats, but you're finding that we don't necessarily see that in some voter registration numbers that have come out recently. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear Democrats are energized and, you know, interested in trying to reshape uh, the outcome in 2018. But what we're not seeing is any spike in enrollment uh, for uh, voting registration. So statewide Democratic registration is up, but Republican registration is up even more. And if you look at it on a on the congressional district basis, what we see is that, uh, for example, in Congressional District 1, this is the district in northeastern Arizona that is currently represented by Tom O'Halloran, a Democrat, uh, Democrats picked up 2%. Uh, in new registrants, uh, Republicans picked up 3.3%. Uh, if you look at um, S- Congressional District 9, this is the one by uh, Kirsten Cinema. it's the sort of exception here. Democrats have actually outgained Republicans. Most of the other um, congressional districts, Republicans have outgained Democrats about three points to two points. The one that really is kind of notable and would be of concern to Democrats in particular would be in the second congressional district. That's Martha McSally's district. Um, Whether she stays in or runs for the Senate, it's a tough seat. It is the most narrowly divided seat in Arizona. 
There's one-tenth of a percentage point separating registered Democrats and Republicans in that district. So, again, turnout and registration is sort of important there. In that district, Democrats have actually lost 3.3% of their voters compared to one year ago. Uh, Republicans have lost 1.7%. So uh, both parties have gone backward in that very important district, but it's, again, Democrats are losing more voters there than uh, Republicans are uh, in a seat that is excruciatingly close and very important to Democratic hopes to trying to retake the House next year. So it's an interesting phenomenon. It doesn't, it's not decisive in terms of how next year's elections will go, but the presumed energy that we've all seen from Democratic activists has not translated into additional registrations. Yeah, if you could say Arizona is a red to purplish state that hasn't seen a Democrat win statewide since 2007, right? Napolitano. 2006, yeah. Governor Napolitano. I mean, it would seem that at some point, though, you have to get more Democrats in the state to be able to change that trend or get the ones you have just very much more energized than they have been, Mary Jo? Well, one thing we've, we have been seeing over the years in Arizona is the, the rise of people who register as independents. And a couple of years ago, they came out on top of the heap having the most voters. That's not the case now. Republicans still have the um, the highest numbers, I believe, of regist- registrants. So could some of this, where, where do independents factor into this, Ron, as you look at the two major parties and I thought it was interesting, your stats on um, CD2, where both parties were losing registrants. Does that mean everybody's going to the middle? No, not in, in the uh, McSally district. What's notable there is that uh, independents also lost seats oh. or lost registrations as well. So there's just a, uh, a backward movement in CD2 for some reason. Um, you know, just the, the raw numbers. We have Democrats lost 4,600 voters, Republicans lost 2,300 voters, uh, all others uh, lost 4,400 voters. So in CD2, there's just, uh, you know, sort of this pairing of voters uh, registered at this point. And again, this is the most interesting, most competitive uh, congressional race that Arizona will have in 2018 is in that district. So to see those numbers uh, going down right now against the tide of everyone else is a little um, concerning and, and again, uh, raises questions about how this energy on the left is going to translate into any additional votes, especially in a state that we've seen that has a long history of, of being right-leaning to begin with. Can we conclude that Southern Arizona is giving up on democracy then, Ron? <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll have to see next November. So, uh, but uh, seriously, the the Democrats, what are they, what have, you've talked to them about this. What is their explanation, I guess, for for this phenomenon? Yeah, I think that uh, they're sort of pointing to things like uh, the cyclical nature of voting, that uh, after a presidential election, there's a a drop off and and things get sort of gearing back up. And they, you know, they might uh, point to stats that show that their gap uh, with Republicans is closing compared to where they were, say, four years ago. But again, this is a different environment than where we were four years ago. This is a, a time when uh, coming off a Democratic win four years ago, it would make sense maybe if Democratic interest was sort of flat or declining. To say that now, after Donald Trump is elected in a stunning 
uh, outcome from a year ago and all the uh, activism on the left to try and uh, stop the agenda and, and to be going backward in, in a crucial district and being outgained by Republicans elsewhere around the state is sort of, uh, it is a head scratcher. And I don't, I don't think that saying, pointing to cyclical causes is being uh, truly uh, honest and introspective enough. Joe, you reported on a child welfare case in which two children were to be adopted, but the court changed gears, citing numerous flaws in the evidence or a lack of evidence that was presented by a Department of Child Welfare caseworker, as well as a state-appointed psychologist who had evaluated the mother. So what happened in the case? Do we know? What we know is that the juvenile court back in May uh, looked at this case of a mom and her two kids and decided on the evidence that they would sever her parental rights. So that's, once that happens, the kids are open for adoption. But mom got herself an attorney and appealed and took this to the Court of Appeals, which last week, in a very unusual move, said, we reverse this. We're, we're going to undo this. This, is, this was wrong. This case was not built on um, much evidence. Um, in fact, they called uh, a psychological evaluation of the mother, quote, untethered end quote, from the evidence. So it was a pretty strong condemnation of how the case was put together. Um, and they're going to send this back down to juvenile court to revisit the issue. Did they withhold evidence? I mean, can that, is that, yes. the judges say that specifically? This, the, the three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals that looked at this um, went through the record, apparently, and all we have, frankly, is the court's written opinion because child privacy laws lock up so much other information. But they went through the record and pointed out, well, you presented evidence here, but then you didn't follow through. You didn't include this. You didn't do that. Um, you know, the, uh, they cited the caseworker never went to visit with mom, never checked out the mother's home to see if it would be safe, never um, realized that she had completed all of the training that the Department of Child Safety asked her to do to become a better parent. Apparently, she, she was prompt, did everything she was asked to do, but that did not get reflected before the lower court. So, Mary Jo, do we have a sense as to how unusual this case was for the agency as it relates to the mother? Are all the cases like that, or is this was there something remarkable about the way this case was not documented for, uh, or how atypical is this? This is unusual that a decision would be reversed on appeal. Uh, the Attorney General's Office, which represents the Department of Child Safety, said that you know 95% of these kinds of cases that go to the Court of Appeals are upheld. So that's very unusual. However, I think your question is, is, are these tactics that we're seeing, are those commonplace? Very hard to know. Juvenile court records are sealed. They're private. Um, and the only thing you can hope to get is perhaps a party who might want to share records with you. Um, and if people are very hesitant to come forward, they don't want to be sanctioned by the court. Um, the parents that might have grievances mostly just want their kids back and, you know, leave us alone. I mean, it's hard to know because we don't know the specifics of this case. But in, in looking at the judge's comments, it, it reminds me a little bit of those instances where a, a prosecutor withholds a bit of evidence that might, you know, be exculpatory to, to the defendant in a criminal case, so, you know, whether it's a theft or a rape or whatever, 
And that comes out, you know, years later, and you're like, well, if you had the greater justice in mind, wouldn't it be their duty to put it out? And I think it actually would. What are the ground rules for these kinds of cases, for, for the attorneys arguing? Are they obligated? I know in DCS's case, I'm sure they were obligated to put this evidence forward, but the attorneys involved. Um, well, yeah, the attorneys um, must, um, and the attorneys, though, only can do as much as what their client gives them. And reading into Judge Peter Swan's um, uh, decision, it sounds like there was a determination that the, they should shut off the mom's rights to these two children, even though later evidence showed that she was doing everything that was expected. And keep in mind, um, Department of Child Safety says their mission is, our default position is we keep families together. We, we're going to reunify parents and children. But in this case, uh, once it appeared that once a determination was made that this case just didn't fit that criteria, they were going to make it stick. Perhaps the most damning thing in what the judge wrote is that, you know, given the lack of evidence and how it didn't seem to be based on much of anything, that the only argument that it would be in the best interest of the kids to uh, be severed from mom and be put up for adoption is that they were adoptable. And that's rather frightening. Um, certainly you want to get children into uh, good and permanent homes. But uh, to say that, to conclude that the only reason seemed to be that we could adopt these kids out and close the case is, is rather unsettling. So what does the Department of Child Safety have to say about this? They are reviewing the case. Um, it will go back to juvenile court. And there it will be lost in the shrouds of privacy. <laughs> so unless the attorney who represented the mom um, or the mom herself, you know, reaches out to the media, we're not going to know what happens. We don't know where those kids are. We don't know how old they are. We don't know what happened when the decision came down in May. Where do they go? Where have they been? You know, where are they going to spend Thanksgiving? We, we don't know those things. Is uh, your sense of this woman in looking at maybe some of the legwork that wasn't done on this case, which it seems to suggest a, a bit, is that a factor of, of staffing? Maybe not in this case, but broadly in the agency. Well, you know, there have long been complaints that caseworkers are overburdened. They have way too much on their plate. Their caseloads are coming down, according to the statistics. But there is also a push to try to reduce the numbers of kids in the child welfare system. And you just have to ask yourself, are some of these outcomes because of a rush to let's just close the case, even though it's not taking into account the best interest of the kid? So for our final segment, I'm asking, uh, what's your favorite uh, dish to eat at Thanksgiving dinner? Mary Jo. Cranberries. Cranberries on turkey. Cranberries and cranberry oatmeal bars. Maybe even the cranberry in that cranberry relish that Susan Stamberg always pushes on National Public Radio at this time of the year. That's the one with onions and horseradish in it. It's, it's, it ain't bad. Ron? It won't be cranberries. I can say that. <laughs> Uh, give me the turkey with mashed potatoes and uh, don't spare the gravy, please. And my favorite Thanksgiving dish is mashed potatoes. Uh, I will start with pumpkin pie and end the meal with pumpkin pie as well. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. You can follow me at Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. I'm Eliza Collins, and you can follow me at Eliza Collins 1. You can follow me at 
Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thanks to the politics team. Our production team is Jojo Huckaba, Haley Sanchez, and Kayla White. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. We'll see you next week.